You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter. On the beginning of February, a very, very windy day here. Yeah, bright, sunny, gorgeous. You usually start with a beautiful, sunny day in Northern California. And it is. But boy, is it windy. We've had two days now of north wind. Uh, The Weather Service tells us that today, February 2nd, there will be gusts as high as 37 miles an hour. And the north wind is running 22 to 26. And we've had two full days of this already. Very dry, very windy. Let's go ahead and get through the temperature data first. 62 degrees is the high today, February 2nd, as we're recording the program. The day of the broadcast, the high will be 59 degrees and mostly sunny. Thursday night, that'll be February 3rd, it will be 35 degrees and there will be frost. We've had frost, just for the record, almost every day for the last three to four weeks. The only exceptions being days that it's either been foggy or windy enough to mix warmer air in and prevent the frost. Other than that, we've had a lot of frost. We'll get back to that topic shortly. Friday, 61 degrees, and then Friday night, 35 degrees, but partly cloudy. One brief episode in the next week or so where we may have some clouds streaming over us. No chance of rain in those clouds. 62 degrees on Saturday, 36 Saturday night. Sunday, there will be areas of frost before 9 a.m. It'll get up to about 64 degrees, sunny, beautiful day, I imagine. Sunday night, mostly clear, low around 36. Monday, areas of frost, otherwise sunny, high near 65, and so on. That goes right on through into the extended forecast. And unfortunately, in terms of our rainfall, the extended discussion Sunday through Wednesday is dry weather with above normal high temperatures. As the ridge builds into the western United States again and over the weekend into early next week, locally gusty northeasterly wind is possible in the eastern foothills into early Monday, overnight frost possible in the central valley. So we are again going into a period of at least a week. Long range forecasts that I've seen for the weather models from the United States and Europe all agree basically no rain in California at least through February 12th. Okay, that's as far out as they're going right now, 10 day forecast. Is it time to turn on my sprinkler? <laughs> I have answered that question a couple times over the last few days because it's so dry. <laughs> and again, there was lots of moisture from that rain in October and November was dry. Then we had very good rainfall in December. January was dry. The soil still has good moisture reserves for the woody plants. I haven't noticed the orchard operators in the area yet firing up their irrigation systems as they did last year, the year before during the drought, where they were literally irrigating in January because of the lack of rainfall. There's lots of moisture down there. But if you've seeded your lawn last fall or midwinter, if you've planted annual flowers, if you've planted vegetables, if you have a raised vegetable planter, those are definitely needing some irrigation. The bigger plants I'm not real concerned about, although personally I'm about to go through my irrigation line on my walnuts and I'm going to check the emitters and I'll probably run it through one cycle just to flush out the lines because we're looking at another two weeks essentially without rainfall. At some point in the next week or two, I'll probably go through one full irrigation cycle on those. 
Reason for that being, it's well established that if walnut trees are stressed during the winter, drought stress during the winter, it has a significant impact on their yield that year. So that particular case, you may see some of the orchards in the region have them where they begin irrigation. That doesn't mean you need to run through your entire landscape. There's still moisture down there for the ornamental plants. Your fruit trees are probably fine. We've got to keep an eye on the soil moisture. And things that have been recently planted, and especially container plants or any bare root trees you've put in the ground recently, go ahead and give them a good soaking right now. Or again, probably in about a week from the looks of the weather forecast. Unfortunate, but true. And is this meaning that the snow pack in the the hills has been diminished? Oh well, it's there. It's melting rapidly, but it's there. You know, the snow pack is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we had quite a deficit to overcome. So you can look on different drought monitor sites and see where we stand and whether we're moving out of or into severe drought. We're still in drought. Um, and really it's, it's going to depend on what happens late February and March as to where the state's water supplies will be. We got off to a great start this season statewide, and now we've had this long period again where this very stable high-pressure ridge is blocking storms from California. It's been about five weeks now. The main uh, secondary impact of this, clear skies, lack of wind once the wind dies down, night after night where the temperatures are down 32, 33, 35 degrees. Now, you wouldn't expect that to be problematic, except that it's happening day after day after day. So we're seeing significant impact on some of the subtropical things that we've been doing so well with the last three or four winters, and we're just getting a lot of cold this year. The chilling hours, for example, in Dixon, uh, I check a weather station near Dixon, we're over 900 chilling hours for our fruit trees, and it's the beginning of February. We're going to end this season probably with 1,100 chilling hours in the Dixon area, probably 900 or more in the Davis area. Don't need to worry about your fruit trees getting the chilling that they need this year. Uh, that That's happening because of the weather pattern. But um, yeah, definitely dry and nippy each morning if you get out there early. Now, I, I mentioned this to people. I've had requests in the same day on Saturday. I had requests for, as you can guess, tomato plants, coleus, <laughs> and geraniums. And the people looked at me blankly with this expression that seemed to be devoid of understanding when I was saying, you realize that we're getting frost every morning. Oh, no, it's warm and sunny. I said, well, you're going out for your walk at 10 in the morning or noon or one in the afternoon. Yeah, it's beautiful during the daytime. We're in the low 60s. I mean, there's parts of the country where I tell my friend in Michigan or my daughter in Brooklyn, who sent me a lovely picture of a foot of snow on her patio. I'm telling them that we're in the 60s during the daytime and they're just, you know, why are you telling me this? <laughs> you, don't need to, you don't need to rub it in, <laughs> but we are getting down to practically freezing at night. And well, it's not cold enough to do that kind of direct injury that 31 or 30 degrees would do. The cumulative impact of very cold, almost freezing temperatures night after night on plants that are tropical or subtropical in origin takes its toll. And the one thing we're seeing a lot of this on is citrus because of the just the impact of how many nights of frost we've had and then all that very cold, foggy weather we had in December. So I'm getting a lot of questions about citrus as well. But we've got other things to talk about first. Well, the date today is 2 mm-hmm. and our show is tomorrow on the 3rd of February. I wanted to talk about wind because we've had so much wind in fact we still have wind right now i have general questions about what kinds of things do we need to think about usually can't prepare for a wind event because you never know it's going to come but is there anything we should do should should we for the for the 
house plants and not house plants, the potted plants should we be watering ahead of the wind or well they're or drying after out the wind dies down is there anything we do they're drying out very quickly at my garden center we are watering everything each day right now which is more typical a pattern you know may june july <clears throat> but we're getting enough of dry wind that plants and containers are drying up bare root trees which we still sell in you know bins of shavings we're having to water those two to three times a day we've got seedlings in trays both outside and inside we're watering them two to three times a day uh, it would be wise we were looking at it as this north wind was coming in and trying to figure out from the wind patterns around our building and around our greenhouses do we need to shift the position a little bit to shelter them from the wind because that's a good idea you don't want the little seedlings whipping around and the main thing is, uh, in terms of macro preparation, you might call this, your trees need to be visited by an arborist every so often. And how often depends on the species. And this is why. Because we're getting this kind of a wind. And if a branch is a poor angle or weak, or there's a problem with the tree's structure, this is when the branch comes down. And those branches can range from not such a big deal, but sort of scary when a one-inch branch falls down suddenly on your driveway or on your roof to things that can do significant damage. And that's why it is a good idea if you have mature trees, especially to have a tree service look at them at a fixed cycle that that tree service will tell you is appropriate. Every two to three years, in the case of let's say Calariana pears, every five to seven years, this is off the top of my head. So listen to your tree expert for oaks and maples and things like that. They need structural, uh, their structural integrity needs to be evaluated. And this is why this kind of wind is when those branches will break and fall. Those can do damage to life and limb. So that's obviously a, not just a hazard, but a risk. And speaking of dam damaged limb, we had a limb come down off our redwood tree and it was made a lot of noise. It was very surprising. It was a little <laughs> bit scary. But when I went out and looked at it, I realized that that big old long stick with all the fluffy needles on the end, it was no bigger than my arm mm -hmm. where it was attached to the tree. So I, I got to thinking about that and looking at the tree. The redwood tree is basically one great big giant post with little sticks coming out directly <laughs> yeah, out yeah. of the side of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the it doesn't look like the structure of an apple tree or an oak tree no. or any of those other things because this one is like so upright. It's just that one great big trunk. And so the things that are the branches on it never get huge. I mean, no, they, they get long and, yeah. and there's there's a lot of, of stuff on there, but I, I never feel like the thing's going to fall over on me. No, generally speaking, redwoods will drop small branches up to an inch in diameter. I have two that I planted more than 35 years ago. And where they are, when the branch comes down, I just pile it up nearby because it's one of the areas of my property where foxes and other animals like to harbor. So they provide some habitat for that. And after a while, I may take them off to the burn pile, but I usually let them sit for quite a while. There's quite a number of branches there, none of them particularly dangerous, uh, maybe three quarters of an inch to an inch in diameter. This is not, uh, this is fortunate because lots and lots of coast redwoods were planted around the Davis Woodland Dixon area way back in the 70s, 80s, 90s, well, even before then. But that's when there was really, it was, it was our top selling evergreen tree for quite a long time. 
in spite of the fact that it's not particularly drought tolerant. So they've really fallen out of favor because of more and more drought episodes occurring, causing significant stress. But they are not a particularly dangerous tree to have fairly close to the house. And that's fortunate because of the way they were planted back in those days. People would plant three, four, five, ten, twelve of them in a backyard to provide that privacy, that screening, the grove effect. And then over time, some would thin out simply because of how densely they were planted and some branches would start coming down. They can be a challenge to garden under. They're not the tidiest tree to have in a small yard. And I certainly don't sell very many coast redwoods anymore, given their lack of drought tolerance. But with adequate water and, you know, some observation of the branches as they're developing, you can, it's a, it's a safe tree compared to certain other trees that are often planted that close to the house. So I'm not real concerned about, you know, a group of coast redwoods 15, 20 feet from a house dropping branches because the branches they're going to drop are not going to crush the building or do that kind of significant harm. If you have a Modesto ash, you know, with a branch hanging over your roof, then it should be evaluated at every couple of years by an arborist who will tell you not just for his own financial self-interest, but because that's what they're trained to tell you, how often it should be visited for consultation, perhaps for some corrective pruning. We'll always tell you, for example, as we learn in arboriculture, that safe branch angles are between 30 and 45 degrees from the trunk. Anything less than 30 degrees, narrow branches have a tendency to get what's called occluded wood trapped in there, and they're structurally unsound wider than 45 degrees going out to 60 or 90 degrees, you know, straight out from the trunk. There's not the um, enough reaction wood in many species to make that a safe angle. So they're often removed. There are exceptions. Oak trees can have wide angles like that. But with a redwood, they go to 90 degrees very quickly. And they're in fact reverse angles uh, as the tree grows, but it's not a big issue because they don't become giant broad scaffold limbs such as we get with oaks and ash and maples and other trees so they just shed some of those branches and my trees that are 35 years old have lost most of the lower branches all on their own i didn't cut them off that's the nature of what that tree does so yeah you're living near a redwood tree and you're hearing a branch come down you don't have to be particularly concerned about that tree although you should have it looked at every now and then uh, bigger deciduous trees that are broad with a spreading canopy like the 70 foot sycamore over my house yeah, I should have a tree service look at that and evaluate the branch angles and the integrity of those branches. Now, we okay. should mention, hold on, let's back up here. We've got that PSA kind of stuff that we're supposed to do here. So, for example, one thing that we ought to tell you is that uh, KDRT is community radio. That means it's supported by people like you who listen to this show and like it so much that you write us a check and mail it to us. Or you even go online and use your credit card. And you can do that by going to kdrt.org and clicking on the support button. So if you like community radio, if you like the Davis Garden Show, if you like all the other great programming here at KDRT, hey, while you're there looking at how to give us money, look at the other 30 plus shows that are produced every week here by by volunteer, we call them disc jockeys, programmers, I guess is the official term. Hosts, hosts and hostesses. No, we don't have hostesses. Hostesses, we have- uh, Those are Twinkies. We (laughs) We have programmers, thank you. Who, uh, who are giving you all this great content every week. We have Hawaiian music. We have cowboy poetry. We have jug band music. I could go on. We have several shows that are so eclectic, I don't even know how to describe them, where they play all this amazing music. That's catered. And if you like KDRT, you like community radio, head over to kdrt.org and click the support button. Well, you're there. Click on one of those other shows. Like, I don't know, That's Life comes to mind. <laughs> Okay, so that's Life is My Show, and it is on Thursdays at 11, where this show, Dave's Garden Show, is at Thursdays at noon, so you can get me twice, 
And then on Saturday mornings, I'm at 7 a.m. Oh, well. Wow. And the garden show is at, at 9. Yeah, well, they move things around when we had to reschedule things according to who could go into the station and who wasn't. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, I've got a, a great show coming up this week. Um, I invited some friends onto a Zoom meeting, and the topic was, and they knew they were being recorded for the radio show, and the topic was cattails and animal stories. And so it's a fun one. Okay. It's a fun one. What mm-hmm. are you doing on your show? I usually have several playlists working at any given time for Jazz After Dark, and one I've been working on that I'm hoping to have up within the next week or so is a retrospective review of Duke Ellington probably the most important jazz artist of the 20th century. And I've been putting this one together for quite a while because picking out of his hundreds, hundreds of recorded uh, works is challenging, narrowing it down to something that I think reflects his character, personality, and influence in the world of jazz. So Duke Ellington, maybe next week, or likely the week after, because I fiddle with these things a lot. And when is your show on, Don? 8 p.m. on Tuesdays. And it also <laughs> 8 p.m. on Tuesdays, yes. And it rebroadcasts, and the rebroadcast time varies. It's also a podcast, and so if you have any podcast directory, you can find Jazz After Dark. Or you know what you really should do if you have a podcast directory that you like? Just type in KDRT, because I know my show is on there. I know the Davis Garden show is on there. And I know there's a bunch of the others that are bit by bit getting onto the different podcast directories. And you can hear some of the other great programming here at KDRT. When we're talking about the trees, my redwood tree doesn't need any problem. When you're considering should the tree be removed, you just go talk to an arborist. You don't you don't have to make decisions on your own, right? Well, they can assess its safety. I mean, this is really the key question with any tree of age is whether it is a risk, not just a hazard, but an actual risk to people or structures or anything like that. And also what can be done to prevent future problems. You know, I, I had a tree that I had to take out. This is sad. An incense cedar that I planted 35 years ago. And about eight or 10 years ago, I noticed that it had two liters. But okay, we need to deal with that eight or 10 years ago. After about five years of that, I looked and realized not only did it have two liters, it had begun to split between the two liters. Now I had a tree that was a hazard. And where it was over my driveway, not a high risk, but would become an increasing risk if this problem got worse, which it did. We had a tremendous windstorm here that caused that split to widen. And I had the tree guy come out and he climbed up there and he said, I've got bad news for you. This split goes more than halfway down the tree. So there is no Mm -hmm. taking out one of these leaders to save it. This tree basically needs to come out at this point. Had I had that tip of one of those leaders nipped out eight years ago, I'd probably still have that incense cedar. So let my lesson inform all of you. And in my yard, I had something similar. I had no idea there were, there were two leaders. It was in an Aleppo pine right next to the sidewalk in my front yard. And it's so, it's so big and bushy. You know, I didn't even know that existed. There was a problem until a heavy windstorm. And all of a sudden I had two 20 foot tall, um, twigs <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the ground and you know luckily the rest of the tree wasn't damaged and it recovered nicely but I just I had no idea that there were double headers yeah okay, it's well let's it's, move it's, on to something. go ahead yep so we got a lot of questions that have come in a couple topics from before that we want to revisit so uh, why don't you pull up the one okay. about wildflowers oh no 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 
we were oh, going to go with with a drought because you said every, in the weather. We, weather, okay. We do the segue from right, the wind. Right, right, the right. We'll do that. The, okay. Well, you had me set. That's the order in which I've got them <laughs> set in front of me, Donna. So All right. Let me give you a data. So this let is me the give you, university. Let me okay. give you. Let me give you a data point that will be useful to inform us um, about some of the things we're seeing. January 2022 versus January 2021. Days under 40 degrees. I should say nights under 40 degrees. This year, we've had 17. Last year, we had nine. All right. So our low temperatures, we've had twice as many days in the month of January where the night temperature was lower than 40 degrees as we did previous year. Let me link that to most common questions coming my way other than can you get me tomato plants? Most common questions coming my way are what's wrong with my citrus? Mm. And uh, most commonly they're bringing in leaves that are yellow, but there's other issues. And so it is related to two things which seem a little disparate. One is the very cold weather we had in December where it was low daytime highs. It's hard to say these and, and, and you know, accurately. The high temperature each day in December when it was foggy, overcast, and we had a lot of fog and overcast. We typically, there were days where we didn't get out of the 40s. You may remember that, mm -hmm. where we barely got into the 50s. Well, citrus doesn't really like that. The nights weren't freezing, but the nights were in the 30s and the days were in the 40s, day after day after day. Then in January, it's all cleared up, no fog, no clouds, no rain, but we're getting down close to freezing every night. And what that's doing in the case of a lot of the citrus is injuring the root system. When you bring me a citrus a leaf that is yellow, I can tell you there's a problem with the roots. I can't tell you exactly what the problem is, but from that point, we can guess and we can discuss irrigation, exposure, which variety it is, and so forth. But a lot of them are just yellowing overall. And it is an effect on the roots being unable to take up nutrients. Uh, there may be nitrogen in the soil. You may have fed them adequately. When it's that cold, the root hairs just aren't taking up the nutrients. So it looks like a plain old nitrogen or fertilizer deficiency. Yes, you're welcome to put some fertilizer on there, especially if you choose a kind that is going to stick around and not, you know, not just run through the soil rapidly or, or disappear. Uh, so an organic source will probably stay there and do what it's supposed to more quickly. But in any event, whether you use a conventional or an organic source of nitrogen, it's not really going to show results until things are warmer. Uh, nitrogen in any form has to go through a couple of stages for the plant to be able to take it up. And uh, they, it has to have adequate soil temperature, adequate soil moisture, adequate microbial activity in order to break down through the different stages that it has to go through before the plant can absorb that nitrogen. So you can feed it now, but it's going to be a while, probably four to six weeks before you will see results from any kind of fertilizer, whichever you apply. Good news is that these kinds of deficiencies aren't very harmful, but it seems like it's worse this year. And it is probably worse this year because of cold, not freezing, but just relentless cold weather, both kinds, December, low daytime, high temperatures, January, night after night, close to freezing, doing some injury to the roots. And we would expect to see more damage on the more tender species of citrus, which includes limes, lemons, and citron. We would expect to see less injury on oranges, and mandarins and other citrus are somewhere on that spectrum. So that's the other thing to know is that citrus that we grow in our gardens come from six or seven different species in the genus, and they vary as to how much they're affected by cold weather. The most affected typically are the lemons, the limes, and if you happen to be growing Buddha's hand or Etrog citron, they also are on the tender end of the spectrum. And so they seem to be showing more damage. 
But then I had someone in yesterday who brought in a grapefruit and it had, aside from all the yellowing, she brought the fruit and the fruit was about the third the size of what it should be. They're growing, they're, they've turned color. And she said two things. One, they're too sour. Well, that's easy. They're not ripe yet. They turn color long before they're ripe. I wouldn't be picking citrus probably, um, grapefruits probably to later in February, even early March. But the, the fruit size is almost certainly related to late season, or actually I should say mid-season drought last year. That we know very well that uh, if you don't adequately irrigate citrus between about June and September, the fruit is in its rapid expansion phase. It sets in April, it's, it divides heavily in May, and starting about the end of May, early June, it expands very rapidly. And it does that rapid expansion over the course of the summer. If the tree is drought stressed at any time that the fruit is expanding, it will sort of stop expanding. Very commonly, it will just get to a certain size and develop and go into the ripening phase after several weeks sitting there. So that grapefruit, which should have gotten, you know, four inches in diameter is only two inches in diameter because very likely because of drought stress midsummer. If you want to water your citrus trees efficiently, if you, we go into a drought pattern and the state mandates cutbacks in irrigation, which is very likely at the rate things are going, you can do that. Citrus can be irrigated significantly less than many other tree crops, but you should maintain high irrigation, relatively speaking, in the summer. So you can kind of skip irrigation as you go in from the spring into the early summer, as long as it's adequate. Usually enough rainfall, we get enough rainfall in most years. We didn't last year, but most years we get enough rainfall to get the tree through the bloom period and the fruit set period. It's the fruit expansion phase when you should water deeply, thoroughly when you do, every couple of weeks if your soil will allow that. As the fruit gets to full size by the end of September, early October, you can cut way back on the irrigation. Farmers know this, and there's a lot of research on this. Uh, October into November, I'm not saying you could shut it off completely, but you could go down to 50% of the measured evapotranspiration rate, and you'd probably be fine. The fruit is full size. It's ready to move into the, the ripening stage. You're not going to harm the quality. You're not going to harm the size. You're not going to harm the yield. So if you're going to reduce your irrigation on citrus and you want to be a good citizen and use less water, the time to do it is when the fruit, fruit is fully expanded. Now we can be hot and dry here, September, October, November. So I'm saying perhaps one deep soaking each of those months, September, October, for sure, November, depending on rainfall. And then probably winter rainfall will take care of the fruit development at that point. But you can inadvertently affect not just the quantity, but the quality of your fruit by cutting back at the wrong time. And that fruit expansion phase, June, July, August into September, you should be giving the trees good deep soakings you can go, for those of you who like this technical stuff, 70 to 75% of measured evapotranspiration rate, and you will have a fine crop. I know that there's, there are even citrus farmers who do that. They use a 70% of evapotranspiration rate for their irrigation, and that does not affect their yield. But you can cut back even more once the fruit is full size, even though it hasn't yet started to turn color. All right. We actually have... Another citrus thing that you sent me, mm -hmm. which is a wonderful article, in fact it looks like a newsletter, from the University of California Agriculture and Natural Resources, and they have drought tips for irrigating yeah. your citrus with limited water. So it's a very interesting read, and I will give you the URL to where you can get it. A-N-R catalog dot ucanr dot edu 
And this is publication 8549, October of 2015. Hey, do you remember we had a drought in 2015? Yes, indeed. So the title of this is Irrigating Citrus with Limited Water. And there's a bunch of things that, that citrus growers will do. Bear in mind that the leading citrus production county in California is Fresno County. And they rely entirely on water from the state water project. So they're up and down. Well, not entirely. They also use groundwater. So they're up and down in terms of their water availability. If they get into a very severe drought, you'll read in that particular article there about how they sometimes will prune hard. I've heard of avocado growers in Southern California severely reducing the size of their trees, sacrificing in the case of the avocados a couple years of crop in order to save the trees rather than cut back the water and, and have that stress lead to adverse consequences on the trees. So they'll cut way, way back, but, but they'll also cut the tree back. Anytime you prune a tree, you reduce its water use. I mean, you're taking off leaves since this is that simple. So if you also are a home gardener and you want to do your part about reducing water use and you're growing fruit trees such as peaches, plums, nectarines, apricots, all the deciduous fruit, not the citrus, but the deciduous fruit trees, that summer pruning that we talk about all the time is a really simple way to reduce water use. We're suggesting you can go out and take your fruit trees back, you know, a couple feet all around or more for size control. Well, what you've just done is taken off anywhere from 15 to 30, 40% of the foliage, and that reduces the water use by the plant. So if we are in a drought situation, it's a good practice anyway, in terms of size control and all that kind of thing. I strongly encourage all of you to adopt summer pruning on your stone fruits because it's, it's easier. It's, there was no urgency to it. You can work on it some this weekend, some next weekend. It's like any time between early August and the end of September is fine to get that done. And as you do that, you're making that tree more drought tolerant. You're making that tree use less water, I should say, because you're simply removing some of the foliage. You go ahead and give it a deep soaking after you do. And um, that tree will not be stressed by that. This is kind of a new way of thinking, new-ish way of thinking, is that you're going to prune them in a manner that actually intentionally stunts the tree. And the first question I usually get from people who have studied plant physiology, doesn't that dwarf the tree? I think, yeah, yes, it does. That's, that's, one, point. Yeah. that's one of our goals, yes, is to, I won't we'll call it dwarfing the tree, but to get the tree manageable size for picking fruit. And if you were a farmer, you wouldn't do that because it would reduce your yield. Well, once again, homeowners don't need 900 to 1,000 peaches off one tree. They want one or 200 off of that variety. And then they want the next one 20 feet away to ripen two weeks later. And so you can manage a whole lot of smaller trees and have greater diversity, even in a small backyard. But a side benefit of that is the reduction of water use. You can actually get by once you've harvested all your stone fruits, you've done your summer pruning. I know people who water deeply every two to three weeks and that's fine. The trees are, aren't even stressed by that. So it is possible to water fruit trees significantly less in the landscape. And I think this is going to come up more and more because vegetable gardens are high water users. We want you all growing your own food for a lot of reasons. You know, better health, better diversity in your diet, the fun of gardening, all that kind of thing. But vegetable gardens use as much water per square foot, basically, as does turf. A 10 by 10 vegetable garden is a pretty intensive water user in your backyard, but it's only 10 by 10. But your fruit trees can be part of a low water landscape. They can be easily incorporated into xeriscaping, as people like to call it, where you have low water plants out there on one drip valve and fruit trees as the backdrop on another drip valve. And gradually, once they're established, you can water them less and less often, deeper and deeper as you do. And they can be actually water efficient part of the landscape. One of the most effective low water landscapes I know in Davis, he used citrus trees as his hedge. 
And uh, the front is all the traditional low water things. He would just come into my shop every couple of weeks and see a yucca that he liked or see a California native or something from the Mediterranean that would go in with its own little ring of drip. And that all got watered very deeply and infrequently and less and less often as the plants got established. And I was looking at it with him and I said, wait a minute, I was just looking at your hedge. Those are all citrus, right? And he goes, yeah, I had citrus trees on six foot centers clipped to below eight feet. So they're all pruned like a hedge, which reduces their yield. Yeah, he only gets 50 to 100 <laughs> on each tree. That's enough for most people. If he wanted more, he'd let him get bigger, but he doesn't want to get up on ladders any more than I do. So it's the same idea. He's getting privacy from the citrus. They have the beautiful blooms in the spring that have the wonderful fragrance. The fruit is very attractive. He gets plenty from each one and he carefully prunes them to keep them just a couple feet above the fence. Some pruning that he can do, a gentleman in his 60s and maybe in his 70s by now, from a stepladder. And that's it. No, nothing higher than just a simple stepladder to keep it down. And he's deep watering those basically with the low water landscape. So he's getting adequate results. He doesn't let them get drought stressed during the period of fruit development. And he, he he's not a plant expert. He just happened to know that there's ways to water these trees to give them just what they need, just enough to keep the yield adequate and keep the fruit quality up there. This is the beginning of February. And I did not get any pruning done in my plum tree last mm -hmm. year. So now is the time to prune it, isn't it? Um, this is a good time to do structural pruning. This is traditionally when most people have done the major part of their pruning on fruit trees. But if you don't get to it, it's not an emergency with a plum. It's an emergency with a peach <laughs> because of the way they fruit. This is an important thing to know. So if you all are getting behind on all this and you've got a bunch of fruit trees and you're trying to figure out what matters, the peach, if you don't prune it, will flower all down last year's growth, new wood, we call it last year's growth. And all of those flowers will try to set. I guarantee it and have this experience. If we get good pollination weather, which it's looking like we're going to have while they're in bloom, you'll get fruit at every blossom all the way down a five or six foot branch. And I can tell you what will happen if that hasn't been pruned. Crack. Yes, indeed. I can almost tell you where it'll break. And I would suggest that you go ahead and prune it at that point right now, rather than let that break. Um, there's a there's a subdivision of permaculture where they don't prune fruit trees. This is a small subset within the permaculture crowd. They plant them and then just let them do their thing, which works fine with some things. You know, if your apple tree gets giant and you don't prune it, all right, you get a lot of small, wormy apples, but they're still perfectly edible. If your peach or nectarine, if you let it go without pruning, I've done this. I look at a variety, I'm going to take that one out. I'm not going to worry about pruning it now. And then I don't get around to taking it out. I can tell you exactly where on that branch it's going to break. Right about the midpoint of the curve, it's going to split. That would not be an issue if it weren't for the fact that it doesn't cut, break clean. And uh, sometimes the whole branch splits down on the trunk and it opens up parts of the interior to sunlight, which weren't getting it before you get sunburn on the interior wood. That's kind of the beginning of the end for fruit trees. That happens on peaches and nectarines because they fruit on new wood. Last year's growth is new wood. That's where they fruit. Plums, apricots, cherries, apples fruit predominantly on spurs. So they fruit on the same part of the tree year after year after year, and you just get an increasing number of spurs as time goes by. Seven, eight, nine years in, you're getting so many spurs and so much fruit set that it can collapse. But you can continue to prune 
right on into the spring while they're blooming. You can prune when you see a lot of fruit hanging on there that hasn't fully developed. It's okay to prune later on in the season. And most especially if you haven't gotten around to this pruning on your plum right now, and you don't get around to it even while the fruit is developing, okay, the fruit's going to be smaller because there's more of it because hardly anybody can really bring themselves to go out and thin the fruit on a plum. That would take you all day. Um, You can still go in after your harvest and after the growth cycle has ended, which is typically June into July, and go ahead and do the summer pruning. So summer pruning has given you all an out on some of these things. You know, your apricot, your plum. In fact, your apricot, we don't want you pruning in the winter. We only want it being pruned in the late summer. So you can set aside plums, pluots, apricots, things like that to prune in the late summer. Do your peach and your nectarine now just because you know that if you haven't gotten around to them, there may be structural issues and they may fall apart from the weight of the fruit. Mm. We generally have pruned in the winter. It's always been the recommendation. And it is easier to see what you're doing structurally in the winter, obviously. If you're looking for good placement of the branches or crossing or rubbing limbs, you know, all that foliage being out of the way, that's great. That makes it a lot easier. But it's not absolute that you have to prune in the winter. It took 20 years of Ed Livo from Dave Wilson Nursery going up and down California, going to garden clubs and nursery association meetings and and pushing the idea of summer pruning, backyard orchard culture, he calls it. And you can find a Google search for that phrase, backyard orchard culture. We'll bring up all kinds of great YouTube videos on how to do it. And you begin to realize that what he was really saying was, one, you control the size of the tree. Don't go looking for magic root stocks. Don't go looking for magic miniature trees. You control the size of the tree and your pruning will do it. And don't be scared of pruning. And you can do pruning at different times of year. So don't be too concerned if you haven't gotten around to it. The one I'd look at would be the peaches and the nectarines, which are type of peach basically because of the way they fruit. The other ones, it's not as crucial. So it's not an emergency. So that leads us directly to the next email we got. And Laurie says, do you carry any fully dwarf citrus trees? Yeah, I get this question a lot. And there's a, um, there was one company, is one company, Four Winds Growers, been around since the 1940s, I believe, uh, which pioneered what they called true dwarf citrus. They trademarked the term, if I recall. They applied that term to citrus varieties, the ones you know, the recognizable varieties that have been grafted or budded onto a rootstock flying dragon that caused the top to grow very slowly and it was about half the growth rate that the tree would typically have roughly speaking i've looked at a lot of charts of citrus rootstocks and the impact they have and it's variable but this one was consistent it was a very dwarfing rootstock it caused a satsuma mandarin to grow one foot a year it caused a navel orange to grow maybe two feet a year whereas those would grow two to three feet a year and four to five feet a year respectively on different rootstocks for reasons best known to them, but which I can guess at, Four Winds stopped using the flying dragon rootstock several years ago. In point of fact, all of my citrus growers now use the same rootstock. They all use the C35 rootstock, which when you graft a normal, let's say Washington navel orange onto it or a normal Owari Satsuma mandarin onto it, will get to about 80 to 90% of what it would on a regular rootstock. Okay. 80 to 90%. So a 15 foot tree is 13 feet. Is that a significant enough that's difference? Not dwarf. No. And they don't call it that. Dwarf. No, we don't call it that. So that's the good news is that we, uh, we call that, or they like to call it, the growers like to call it semi dwarf, which as I've said before, oh, why don't they just call it slow growing? Well, cause that's a, not a marketing term. Slow growing is not a desirable <laughs> thing. So this is retail. <laughs> if you said slow growing, oh, I don't want slow growing, but you want a small tree. 
well, yeah, I want a dwarf. Okay, so I'm scratching my head. How do you get a dwarf tree if it's not slow growing? It's a slower growing tree than it would be on a regular rootstock. And that's also, by the way, not consistent across all the varieties. So it isn't even consistently, quote, semi-dwarf, end quote. There is no one out there growing true dwarf citrus because the company that was doing it stopped. Part of the reason they stopped, my guess is, it takes them a long time to get a saleable tree that way. So if you're in the business of selling young citrus trees and it takes you an extra year to get a five-gallon tree up to saleable size because of the rootstock you've chosen, and the demand for citrus always exceeds supply, and uh, you've got your customers clamoring for something that we can sell to our customers, I'm their customer, um, you're going to gradually go over more and more to a faster-growing rootstock. And I think that the advantage, I have a lot of trees on the flying dragon rootstock. I actually have trees of the flying dragon rootstock on my property. It does cause them to grow much more slowly, but I can certainly see why the growers all shifted over. And in California, they've all gone to the C35 Citrand rootstock, which is a good, sturdy, phytophthora resistant, vigorous rootstock, leads to a nice, healthy top, gives them a product they can sell reasonably quickly, and then you control the size by pruning. And I think perhaps is that people just don't want to do any pruning at all, in which case I would look at naturally smaller varieties of citrus. Owari Satsuma only grows a couple feet a year, even on this rootstock. Kumquats are slow growing. Meyer lemon is a naturally small tree. So those are three of the best uh, for a large container. That's how this often comes up. Or a corner of the yard where you want more like a bush than a tree. I've got a lot of customers in a new subdivision in Davis. I think this will be an increasing issue over time. Uh, this subdivision is all solar. They are not allowed to plant trees at all. Their CCNRs tell them basically they can't plant trees that would shade even their own solar panels, much less their neighbors. So they're looking for dwarf trees. And then I say, well, we control the size by pruning. And they say, yeah, but the homeowners association won't accept that answer. They won't let you plant a tree. So I would look in that situation at one that's naturally a bush. Meyer lemon, kumquat, Satsuma Mandarin are the three best ones for that situation. My guess is that over time, this rule about not planting trees will break down because with new subdivisions, the homeowners associations enforce things real hard for a few years and then kind of falls by the wayside. But you don't want to plant a tree that's going to block your neighbor's solar panels, which means anything bigger than about 12 feet is probably going to be problematic. And they won't take, uh, apparently they won't accept the we'll prune it answer um, because they just are worried that that might not happen. So if you're in that kind of a situation, look for the naturally smaller varieties. Getting away from citrus briefly, that gets you into things like peaches and nectarines. Well, there are the miniatures that are out there. We used to call them genetic dwarf trees because they were a natural genetic mutation that was very, very compact growth habit. We now call them miniature trees. They're available from some nurseries, limited supply. The fruit is you know, on a scale of one to 10, I'd give it a six or a seven. It's good. It's your own peach in your backyard. And it's like a peach shrub, but it's not the high quality that you'd get out of an O'Henry or a Rio Oso gem or a Loring or an Alberta. It's good. It's a, it's a nice thing to have. And you know, if you've got a barrel and that's the only way you can grow a fruit, a peach tree. All right, it's fine. Way to do that. Uh, but other than that, you control the size. And we, we say that over and over because I want people to feel more comfortable with pruning. You really can't mess up. Okay. I'm pruning a fruit tree. Well, unless within, you cut the trunk off. Within limits. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's much easier to train a young tree to be small than to go up to an established tree and make it small. If you want to do that, you better bring in a tree service and explain to them what you want and see if they're willing to do that. But if you're just now planting a fruit tree and you're limited for space, look for the ones that are naturally smaller. 
And if you're really limited for space, look for some of those miniature ones. But in the world of citrus, those are going to be hard to find at this point. All right. So next question that we have up here is one, I'm not even sure where this one came from. It just appeared in my box. It says, do you struggle with aphids? <laughs> yes. Do you struggle with aphids? You, you know, wrestling doesn't work. I usually just wash them. Just a thumb smash will do it. Uh, the question came up actually didn't originally. We, didn't we do this? Well, we uh, the question was, uh, it came up twice. Once was on a nursery group uh, where they were asking what nurseries do about aphids in their nursery yard, which is an interesting question because a lot of us want to be basically uh, natural or organic in our management of aphids. And then the, it was a customer who asked me, paraphrasing roughly the same thing, you grow that, don't you have a problem with aphids? And the answer in my own garden, no, I haven't had a problem with aphids in quite a while. I, they show up. And they don't get a chance here because there's so many beneficial insects and little songbirds and who knows what else that's eating them. Please tell me the white crowned sparrows eat aphids. No? I don't lie, Don. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you that. Okay. I don't lie. But there are little birds that eat aphids, right? Oh, lots of them, yes. Yeah, and I see these things out there. And so Brussels sprouts are a good example. The first few times I grew Brussels sprouts here in the valley, it was hopeless. They were covered with aphids all the time. I tried every reasonable chemical that we sold at our garden center on them. I tried brasting them off. Whatever that aphid is that gets on the brassicas, it is remarkably tenacious. And it didn't work. And they were even in the Brussels sprouts. And so nobody wanted to eat them. Most recently, last couple of years when I've grown Brussels sprouts, I have aphids will show up and they'll just disappear. And part of that is a conscious effort and also an inadvertently um, accomplishment by various practices of drawing in things that feed on aphids. There's all kinds of ladybugs, of course, lace wings. Um, the leather wing beetle is one of my prime, uh, prime allies in this regard. And it turns out, as I learned years ago, that I was encouraging them by leaving leaf piles where those leaf piles would get watered. And so I was spreading leaves out in a long border area because I have tons and tons of sycamore and walnut leaves and you name it here. I have these enormous trees over the property. I'm out in the country. I'm not sending those off to a landfill anywhere. I'm just raking them off where I don't want them and putting them where they're okay and keeping them watered. It turns out that enormously increases the population of leatherwing beetles because they need that interface of decomposing organic material and native soil with some moisture. Easy enough to provide if you think about it. Um, but just try to pile the leaves up someplace where they'll get watered every now and then by your drip or your micro spray system or whatever, and you'll be encouraging those. So there's so many beneficials that if you work consciously to encourage them, ultimately aphids will just become sort of background. You'll have, they'll show up, the population will start to increase, then it'll start to go down. If it isn't beginning to go down, we've already talked many times on the show about what measures you can take, starting with just blasting them off with water, moving up to neem or other light oil type sprays and so forth. There's almost never a need, very few exceptions, to use any kind of a pesticide for aphids, at least here in the valley, where we have a really good resident population of all kinds of beneficial insects. There's lots of plants you can put in your garden that will encourage the beneficial insects. And my guess is that just because I plant a whole lot of stuff, there's always something flowering out there that's a big factor in this. And I've also noticed the correlation of ornamental grasses and non-native grasses out in the meadow with the presence of ladybugs, for example, during drought periods, I suspect right now we're in early February, it's warm during the day that if I walked out there, I would find ladybugs crawling out and gleaning moisture from the edges of the grass plants that they provide every day uh, by gutation. 
And the lack of rainfall is somewhat compensated by this sort of extra source of water for some of these beneficial insects. So there's things you can do to encourage the beneficials. And I always encourage you to monitor aphid populations rather than immediately assume that they're just going to get worse from the point of of, uh, showing up because they do increase rapidly, but so do the beneficials. There's just a lag sometimes of a week to 10 days before the cavalry comes in and takes out the problem. Uh, If that isn't happening, then you move up following a standard integrated pest management model. Then you move up to the least toxic, effective remedy that will get the job done. And you do it the least number of times and you'd be aware of the possible adverse consequences of spraying. So even things like neem, which everybody thinks is completely without adverse impact, we do know that neem oil, neem extract sprays do harm some beneficials. So sometimes you're spraying for an aphid makes the problem go on longer. So try not spraying first and see how it goes, I guess is how I would summarize the home garden version of integrated pest management. All right. Well, I think we have time for one more question. At least I'm going to try and sneak this one in here. And this is from Ashdale. Uh, When designing a large-scale property of multiple acres, would it be better to repeat trees or have a variety of trees? I'm trying to emulate the look of a large arboretum, but I don't want it to look too much like a hodgepodge of trees. Should I reduce the taxa or species or have more repetition? I'm sure that the ideal would be to have a lot of taxas or species and have repetition and have repetition, but if that's not practical due to space restrictions or r- rarity of species, mm-hmm. what should I prioritize? Uh, what we're talking about here is how you would design an arboretum, how you would design a botanical garden, or how you would design a what might ultimately become a public garden. I know he has an interest in design, landscape architecture, and all that kind of thing, but it also applies to home gardeners in some ways. And he realizes that I live on a farm where I've been planting trees, I've made my own little private arboretum here, uh, partly because I'm a plant collector. Okay. And the plant collectors can be problematic from a design standpoint. We get the plant first, then we go out and we try and find a place for it. And that's cool, but it can make your yard look kind of like a hodgepodge if you aren't careful about how you do it. So if you ever do go to work, Ashdale or anyone listening, for a botanical garden that's actually open to the public, or a public one such as the UC Davis Arboretum. They generally have two missions, and those missions are of equal importance typically. One is is a collection for reference and research, that is, say, the collection part. the maximize the number of different genera and species that you possibly can get into the place because you're you're having it as a, a place for rare things or endangered species or plants that are typical of your region, whatever your purpose is, but the mission there is maximize the taxa as he put it in his question and then the other is that your public and a big part of your mission is education and to educate the public you have to make your place attractive enough that the public who are not plant people for the most part will find it attractive will find it comfortable to walk through will want to come there again and again and avail themselves of the resources that you have provided so i know i'm sure there's lots of people in davis who walk through the arboretum all the time The Arboretum is our crown jewel. It is the place where any of us who have friends coming from out of the area, who want to see what have you got in Davis is cool to look at. We take them to the Arboretum. We don't take them there because it's a park. We take them there because it's more than a park. It's a park with a plant collection, a bunch of plant collections. The plant people who are among those friends, which may be 10%, get really into the fact that this is a California native plant garden. This one is all white flowers. And over here is this and this and this and so forth. Look, a whole collection of just Western red buds, things like that. The non-plant people, I think of my father, for example, 
would walk into a place like the Arboretum, see the nice wide paths and go for a brisk stroll. He would drive us crazy in the family because he didn't stop and look at the plants. He was there for a brisk <laughs> walk along a wide path. Look at these lovely trees. And he'd look back and we were a hundred yards behind crouching over something and trying to read the label. Um, you have to have both. And if he's walking through the coast redwood section there, uh, the Elliott Weir Redwood Grove at the Arboretum, if he stops and reads some of the cool um, signs that have been put up there that explain coast redwoods and tell you more about their ecology and where you can find an actual stand of old growth redwoods, there's a sign that tells you where that is, all that kind of thing. And he'll learn something, even though he came to it primarily because it's an appealing place to go. So you're fulfilling your education mission by making it attractive. One of the simple ways of making it attractive is repetition. It doesn't have to be the same species, but having a bunch of oaks together in one area has made an unbelievable place to go and have a picnic and take family and kids and dogs and you name it down to the west end of the Arboretum. There's a whole bunch of different kinds of oaks there. I don't know how many species of oaks are in the oak grove at the UC Davis Arboretum. It's one of the largest collections, as I understand it, of species anywhere. But the effect is, because oaks tend to have a lot of very similar growth habits, it's a beautiful forest. And it's a place that people like to go who don't even care about oaks. So it is a dual mission there. And the repetition, in my opinion, is one of the key design elements that a lot of us who are plant collectors forget about. So when I'm helping people design uh, a new garden, I'll often suggest they choose some backbone plants. It's great if those flower. It's really nice if they draw beneficials. It's cool if they have fruit. It's, you know, there's a lot of thing, features you can include, but there should be some repetition. Like the gentleman I mentioned at the start of the show who had a hedge of orange citrus trees behind his low water landscape. So you come up, there's 15, 20 different types of things in the low water landscape, but it all pulls together because all along the back behind them is the dark green of these different types of citrus. They're all different kinds of citrus, but they look enough alike that he's managed a, a repetition as an element of design that is, makes the whole thing, to use the term, cohesive. So it makes it more attractive. It makes it easier to draw the public in and fulfill your education mission. So what I'm saying is that both are important. Uh, the collecting part is really fun, and that's what we all like to do. And I can't tell you how many times I've been walking up and down my long perennial border with a plant in one hand going, oh, no place there, oh, no place there. Well, I guess this is full. <laughs> so I'll have to go find some other part of the yard to put it in. But at least I have, you know, midnight penstemon repeated down the backbone of, the, of that border. It doesn't matter that much what it is. I'll give you a couple of hints that blue, purple, white, and gray tend to repeat better than yellow, orange, and red because they tend to jump out at you. And those first colors I mentioned tend to be more passive and more comfortable. So using certain colors for your repetition can be part of the design, but really what it gets to is the shape and the growth habit and the color and texture of the foliage. That's the repetition you want to go for. It doesn't have to be one tree all the way down. It has to be trees with a similar feel all the way down. And then you can mix that up with things that give some contrast or, or give some complementary foliage. One of the simplest implementations of this is to take the flowering shrubs, which are mostly deciduous, and um, the nice evergreen shrubs, which provide privacy and the flowers may be less significant, and use the backbone of the evergreens because then they'll be there even January, February, you know, when everything else is looking bare. But if you have that flowering quince or that spirea or that lilac as a single focal point slightly to the foreground or off to one side, it'll give it season of bloom, but you still have the backbone. So in our area, for example, some of the most common evergreen xylosma, Pittosporum tobiro, they have blooms. I mean, xylosma, you don't really notice them, but the bees love them. Very, very attractive to honeybees. Pittosporum has a nice fragrant bloom for a couple of weeks, but that's not its main thing we grow it for. We mainly grow it because it's a clean background plant. 
a whole wall of it is a little boring, but three and then forward with a shenomaly flowering quince, and then two more pittosporum, and then forward with maybe repeat the flowering quince, something like that can be a very effective way to get color over a long season and still have the privacy and the sense of enclosure that's so important in California landscape design. This may not be the case in other places where people aren't as concerned about having a backyard being a private place, but in California, that's a big deal to us. So having the shrubs that help provide that sense of privacy and then interspersing things that give that different bloom. So you can use the texture of the foliage and for repetition, it doesn't have to all be the same type. You can, with for a dramatic influence, you can take one species as I did down my driveway with six metasequoia trees that I planted back in the 1980s, very straight. I mean, you think the coast redwood is a straight trunk? Try the dawn redwood. That's the metasequoia glyptus triboides. I put them relatively close together. And now 30 plus years later, they're a very dramatic backdrop. And that very strong vertical emphasis looks really nice with trees nearby that have a more spreading growth habit. The classic for this is one that I never have liked much, which is the Italian cypress which is widely used in California, especially high-end neighborhoods, as a very formal, you know, this is that stiff, upright, columnar tree that you tend to think of as being a cemetery tree. Uh, I never liked them until I started seeing pictures of how they look in Italy, where the Italian cypress actually comes from, where they can they plant them in groups of four or five informally. They don't clip them to be very, very stiff and, and formal looking, and they take on a very interesting rugged character. They make a very strong vertical emphasis, and Ashdale being a design type of person will see this right away, that you've got to use that carefully. But I have six of them as a backdrop to part of my rose garden. And I have lots of pictures of my roses in bloom with those Italian cypress as the backdrop because they do help to frame the, the picture. From a design standpoint, even though it's never been my favorite plant, it did work very well in this particular situation. So don't be afraid to use these strongly vertical or these very dense, uh, you know, particular shaped trees. Just be aware that some of them are going to dominate unless you make an effort to break them up a little bit. And that's where getting the other things in with some intriguing foliage, flowers. What I'm going to do on part of this is train a climbing rose already got it underway, Bell of Portugal, up onto one of these Italian cypresses, which is going to function as a trellis. And that will break up the long line of them a little bit with something that gives some seasonal interest. So if you're a more formal kind of person, you'll be aghast at seeing a climbing rose on your Italian cypress. Hey, that's my style. <laughs> and if you'd like to send a question to us so that we could answer it on the air for you, where do they write, John? Show at gmail.com. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Schrifter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.